think you're really going to like this episode of STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and our guest today is Dr. Will Healy, and he's kicking off a three-part mini-series focused on garden mum production intended to help you produce the absolute best mum crops you possibly can using the newest genetics and latest strategies. We're not releasing these episodes back to back to back, but instead when they're most relevant, because many of you listen in real time. So this episode is all about starting your crop, getting it vegetative and keeping it vegetative. Dr. Healy will go in depth on the two most critical factors at this stage in the game, temperature and feeding. He'll cover the most effective temperatures because mums like it hot, and we'll learn all about thermophotoperiodicity. Then he'll transition over to fertilizer strategies because mums are heavy feeders early. We'll also touch on other pieces of the production puzzle, including insect and disease prevention, PGRs, and more. With plenty of tips peppered throughout, this will be a great episode to share with your entire team, because starting your mum crop during some of the busiest spring shipping weeks probably means all hands are on deck. And looking ahead, Dr. Healy will be back in a couple months to cover your actively growing mum crop and discuss starting short days, catching any problems, and timing the crop to be retail ready when it's needed in store. The third episode in late summer will continue the timing message and wrap up with finishing tips and tricks to make sure the absolute best crop is going to market. But first, Connect Four, where we take a look at four points lining up to support one key topic. I think this Connect Four is especially relevant if you're listening in real time, but is certainly great advice no matter what time of year it is in a greenhouse business. I don't need to tell you that our industry is very entrepreneurial and led by extremely hard workers, and many of you were either raised in the business or have been in your role a very long time. These are factors that make today's topic challenging. Delegation. There are a lot of decisions and processes to consider when it comes to building a team and delegating, and there are steps to be taken early on in the process to make it more effective. Here are four tips for effective delegation gleaned from a blog written by Alyssa Gregory for the balance small business. Our first tip is the most difficult, but most important, trust. You need to trust that your team members will complete the work they're responsible for, and your team members need to trust that you are giving them all of the information they need to do the work, and that you'll be available to back them up when necessary. You can create a team based on trust by being respectful of each other, listening and hearing what others are saying, focusing on consistent communication, saying what you'll do and doing what you'll say, that's integrity, and being honest. I like to look at it as ethics. Think about all the, uh, the leaders that you've worked for, um, that's ethics and honesty is really the, the greatest um, talent of a leader. Next, analyze your needs. Knowing what to delegate and who you need on your team to do it effectively requires a clear picture of everything you have on your plate. The best way to figure out where your time's going, especially when that time's going where it shouldn't be, is by tracking your time, all of your time. And this is hard. I think most of us have probably tried this in the past, whether it's tracking the time you spend during your workday, tracking the time that you spend, you know, sort of wasting, wasting time. Um, It's not easy, but it's definitely uh, worth giving it a shot. And if you keep track of everything you do during your workday, you're going to be surprised to see where your time is going and what qualifies as your biggest time drains. Third, develop a prioritized assignment plan. 
You'll need to think through your top delegation priorities and how you're going to assign, track, and manage the delegated work. So focus on your biggest priorities first. You can identify a list of potential high-priority delegation items by answering these two simple questions. Does this need to be completed now? And do I need to do this task myself or can someone else? I think those are worth being repeated. Two simple questions to help you identify your potential high priority delegation items. One, does this need to be completed now? And two, do I need to do this task myself or can someone else do it? The final chip in Delegation Connect 4 is communicate well and often. Good communication is vital for every type of team, and without it, there really isn't a team. When it comes to effective delegation, not only does communication need to be clear, concise, and consistent, but you also need to make sure each team member has access to the same information. One of the ways to accomplish this is by scheduling ongoing face-to-face meetings. These sessions should be focused on collaboration, information sharing, and team building, and it's also important that you remain accessible in between these team meetings to answer questions, provide guidance, and help solve problems when necessary. There's also a lot of technology available to um, help keep uh, teams on the same page and to share this information. So in conclusion, delegation takes forethought and practice. It might seem foreign when you begin, but trust me, it will pay off big time. Now, let's get down to business. The business of producing your best garden mum crop ever. As Senior Manager of Technical Services, Dr. Will Healy is responsible for developing production programs and operational efficiencies that produce consistent, high-quality young plants. He works with ball companies and customers throughout the world, training their staff in cutting-edge production practices. Over the last 30 years, Will has developed innovative operational approaches and scheduling programs that reduce shrink, improve operational efficiencies with reduced crop times. Will's current research emphasis focuses on reducing strength throughout the supply chain from our seed and cutting producers all the way through our customers' retail operations. As growers move to performance-based trading, managing shrink has become the new ticket to play for growers at all levels. Since shrink must be evaluated holistically, Will has developed tools to optimize the product assortment, strategies that reduce buffer requirements, production techniques and process improvements to increase yields, and grower training to improve uniformity and overall quality. A key to Ball's success in young plant production has been the development of production standards and procedures to ensure consistent performance. Working with growers, Will has developed protocols that ensure consistent supplies for customers. These procedures involve operational, software, and plant culture aspects since no one aspect will ensure consistent supply. As author of more than 400 ball culture advisors, Will is well-versed in crop production. Before coming to ball, Will was faculty member at the University of Maryland and Colorado State University, where he published more than 30 scientific publications on floriculture production. Will received his PhD from the University of Minnesota working with Harold Wilkins, and as you'll hear at Minnesota, he did a lot of work with garden moms. Will's a past guest covering watering in a two-part episode, which I'll link to in the show notes. And this episode is one of three parts focused on garden mum production. Expect Will to be a frequent guest on STEM, covering many relevant and timely topics going forward. Will, welcome to STEM. 
Well, thanks a lot, Bill. It's going to be an exciting talk today, I think. Absolutely. You know, you've been on STEM before. I know we did the two-part series covering uh, the language of watering and the rest of the watering story, and those were actually two of our most downloaded episodes, believe it or not. We're at almost 10,000 downloads, and those certainly accounted for a few hundred each. And our listeners are definitely familiar um, with your role as technical services guru and, I like to say, healer of dead plants at Ball Seed, but can you talk a little bit about your experience with our current topic of garden mum production and perhaps some background on why we chose this crop uh, for your return to STEM? Well, sure. Um, I really hate to have to mention how long I've been involved with mums, but um, you know, I went to the University of Minnesota um, and the University of Minnesota actually started garden mum breeding back in the 50s because they were trying to figure out how do we get mums to flower early enough? Because remember, in Minnesota, the growing season starts sometime around the July 4th, and you get your first snow sometime about September 1st. Um, so you have a very short growing season to actually have mums. So um, those of you who have been in the mum business for probably, oh, 30, 40 years, remember the Min series, Min Gopher, Min Autumn, and those were the round, the first roundy, moundy, early flowering mums. And through that, um, we learned a lot about all the topics that um, we're gonna talk about today, and especially what's important to get a nice, high quality mum. Um, so I've been involved both in stock plant production and finished production um, for a number of years. So this is actually kind of a com coming home topic for me because I've known this and worked this crop for many, many years. Excellent. I did not realize that uh, Minnesota was, was breeding mums back in the day. That's that's pretty oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, that, that was kind of some of the very first mums that you, garden mums that you had where you put them out in the field and you dug them up out of the field. That was pretty standard um, practices back in the uh, early years of our industry. Were they hardy? I mean, like hardy, traditional hardy garden they, they were Minnesota. Most of them were um, pretty hardy. But, you know, but if you got a, a winter where you had no snow, you pretty much heaved them up out of the ground and they were dead. Gotcha. Cool. Well, that's that. That's awesome. I like that story. So thanks for kind of getting the ball rolling. Um, I I'm going to ask, just since our audience listening to STEM, you know, might be listening in real time, which is week 16 or 17. It is crazy out there with shipping, um, spring shipping season. Why are we going to talk garden mum propagation while most uh, most of the growers out there are in the midst of uh, some of these, you know, crazy busy weeks? Why are we talking garden mums now? Well, because, you know, what I find is, is that the conversations that we have in September, October, um, and even as early as August where people are complaining about small mums, poor branching, poor um, size, poor just fill in the blank. Usually it's because when you trace back, what did they do when they first stuck those cuttings? They basically sheepishly say, well, we were busy transplanting, shipping, doing the spring season, and we kind of forgot about them. Well, garden mums are very critical that success with your finished program is directly related to what you do in the first um, three to four weeks. Because if you do the first three or four weeks, they're pretty brain-numbingly simple 
to finish out. But if you don't do the right things early, they're more challenging as you go through the season because you're continuously trying to fix problems instead of having the um, crop heading down the road correctly from the very beginning. So that's why we need to talk about just a couple of things right now to basically be successful later in the season. Okay, and I guess now would be a good time to tell the audience that this is going to be the first part in what we're thinking is going to be a three-part series, and we're going to try to cover these three different topics in in a timely fashion. So we're going to cover your um, propagation and starting the mums now. Um, Like I said, if you're listening in real time, weeks, you know, 15, 16, 17. And then um, we're going to move into... Uh, other relevant topics in probably July of 2019, August of 2019. Um, like Will said, when we're getting into a, a time of growing the mums where some of these um, challenges tend to tend to crop up. So yep. um, be on the lookout for uh, two additional episodes related to this topic with uh, Dr. Healy. Um, but for now, um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that no matter how many racks of petunias are going out the door, getting this you know, like you said, this fall crop rooted well, actively growing is going to go a long way to ensure success and ultimately sell through. So what are the key topics that we're going to cover in the next 30 minutes or so? Um, You know, again, reminding the audience that this is the first in a three-part series. So what are these first uh, couple topics we're going to cover today? Okay, well, we're going to talk about um, two primary topics that are the keys to success in garden mums. Um, The first one we're going to talk about is temperature because it's so critical that you're writing them hot enough so that they don't become induced. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The other is make sure that you fertilize the plants. We can't stress this enough that mums are a very heavy fertilized requiring crop early in the season and not very much late in the season. We'll talk a little bit more about what that's all about. Um, So, you know, besides those two, if you start out with really good, healthy cuttings, and this year um, I've been working with our production location down in Florida, who've done a excellent job of getting the stock, making sure that it's clean, making sure that there's no disease issues with it, making sure that they've built up the stock. We've been down there um, at least once a month um, looking at this stock, very healthy looking stock good cuttings, good post-harvest handling, um, good inventory management so the cuttings come through at the correct stage. So I think we're primed for good unrooted cuttings coming from ball this year. And now it's just a matter of growers remembering those two important factors in their limited time of temperature and and the fertilization. Okay, so let's start with temperature. What are the most critical aspects of temperature, you know, heat and cold uh, for mum growers? And I know that in our in our prep call, you, you kept using this eight-syllable word um, that I know is important for garden mum producers to understand. I actually repeated it to my wife, who's a science teacher, and she knew what it was. But I know that you're going to share this this very important eight-syllable word with our, uh, with our listeners um, when you're talking about temperature. Right. And, and I think that this is the one thing that you can leave the, the call today, this podcast, with the idea that um, this will be your key to success. Chrysanthemums are thermophotoperiodic. Okay, so let's, let's break this thermoperiodic um, 
down into um, first photo period because everyone thinks of mums and they know that they're short day plants, meaning that if you have a short day and a very long night, that the plants will be easily induced to flower. To keep the plants vegetative, you normally on a short day plant would have a, um, basically <clears throat> you'd want to have a long night and a short day. So you put a night interruption and then the plants stay vegetative. But because it's this thermophotoperiodic issue, temperature plays a critical role. In the case of chrysanthemums and garden mums are more sensitive than pot mums are, is that if the night temperatures are less than 70 degrees, they will be induced into flower regardless of photo period. So you could have a long day and um, the plants, if it's cold, will still induce. If it's short days and they're and in, and it's um, less than 70 degrees, they basically induce even more. It's a profound, strong flowering signal. So a lot of confusing information here, but what is the take home message? Very simple. When you're propagating the mums, you gotta keep them hot, okay? Take, remember that. You know, the problem growers have is it's summer, spring, the weather is nice. They don't want to run any more oil, gas, whatever. They turn the heat off. The night temperatures get coolish, you know, down into the 60s. For, so for the bedding plants, that's awesome. But for mums, that basically is a strong signal to go reproductive. So you take that cutting that we've grown down in Florida under very good, hot, warm conditions, which keeps them very vegetative. You stick it, you put it into 62 degrees, 65 degrees, and wham, bam, boom, they root and they're induced. And now you've got crown buds all over the place. Hopefully you don't know what I'm talking about, but unfortunately I believe most growers do. It's because it's just too cold. So the take home message here is when you're propagating the chrysanthemums, you've got to make sure that you're about 70 degrees. The higher you are at night, and it's night temperature that's critical, the more vegetative they are. So if you're at 70, 75, awesome. As you go above 78 degree night temperature, now you've got a whole nother set of problems you that you just don't want to go there. So, you know, make sure that your, your, your night temperatures are have seven in the so it's 70, 75. So, Bill, does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, and I know that especially, you know, in well, a lot of areas of North America, those night temperatures can be pretty unpredictable. So, you're, you know, it probably is really critical in the greenhouse to keep that consistent night temperature, even if it means, um, you know, consuming some fuel. Right. And because and if, you, if you think about the garden mums, these are self-branching um, is all the new genetics. There's incredible genetics that have been developed over the last five to 10 years that are strong basal branching, very vigorous growth if they aren't initiated into flower. So you don't form crown beds. So you need to make sure that you put the heat to them and kept them warm and you keep them warm because as soon as they have one, two, three, four days of four nights where the temperatures start wandering below 70, now you're going to increase the chance that you're going to have crown buds forming or just flowering. And so you then have these runt plants that you're going to have to pinch and you have to hassle with. And that this is now um, come June and July, you're asking me, how come my mums are so small? How come my mums aren't even? Um, it's because you just experienced a cold 
event during that early propagation and early plant development. You know, and that's another reason why the later you plant, a lot of times the better the mums are is because you don't have this premature flower bud um, formation that occurs due to low temperature, even with the days being long. You know, you, you're lighting and people say, I've, I've been using a night interruption. I'm putting long days on them. They're still budding up. Why is that? And the reason I think, Bill, you even know now, it's just they've been cold. Right. So. Okay. No, I, I think that, you know, and when, when you talk about the critical factor of temperature, I think you gave an excellent overview. And then, you know, just it is important to, to just remember some of these best practices um, so that you don't run into problems later on down the road. So right. let's move to feeding the crop, sort of yep. the, the next piece to this puzzle um, that, that you started laying out. You talked about your, you know, so much experience seeing um, these crops in greenhouses and in the field from uh, propagation and, start, you know, young plants all the way up through finished propagation. What have you seen um, when it comes to successful garden mum fertilizer strategies? What works best? And obviously, most importantly, why? I'm sure that there have been changes over the years, but what do you, what, you know, right now, what, what are the best, you know, fertilizer strategies and, and why do growers want to um, make sure that they follow these best practices? Well, the fertilizer strategy that you're using doesn't have to be complicated, doesn't have to be convoluted. You know, let's just keep it simple. Because remember, at the end of the day, plants need nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium. They need those in a lot. Those are the macronutrients. And then they need a bunch of micronutrients. And if you've got a good, balanced, big fertilizer, 2010-20, those fertilizers will provide you the critical nutrients that the plant needs to grow if you apply that. I mean, this is the, one of the biggest challenges we have is growers will fail to feed early. Now, why do you want to feed early is really kind of an interesting story. Great, Some interesting research that was done um, in the 70s and the early 80s at, in Ohio State clearly showed that if you look at the nitrogen that's in the plant, at flowering, you know, all the way as we get way out there into, um, you know, August, September, the nitrogen that's in that plant at that point was actually absorbed by the plant back 10, 12 weeks earlier. And what happens is the plant, you put the nitrogen on the soil, the roots take it up and it moves it into the old leaves. The old leaves, then the, those oldest leaves, collect it and absorb all the nutrients. And then as new shoots come out, the nutrients in the old leaves go to the new leaves. Then it just kind of keeps moving through the plant from the oldest foliage into the youngest foliage. So if you starve the plant early, you don't have the nutrient reserve in those old foliage to support vigorous growth. And you end up with plants that just don't have good leaf size. They don't branch well because they're just starving to death because they need the reserves. And they say, well, I'm just going to feed it really heavy because they're really small. Well, that's too little too late because you always have to go from the roots into the old foliage, the old foliage into the newer foliage, the new, and you keep having to move those nutrients from the bottom of the plant up into the youngest developing plant, the youngest developing shoots. So we need to keep, keep the nitrogen going early. So what does this mean? It means that as soon as you stick those cuttings, 
it's not unreasonable to come in with 200 parts per million nitrogen to just get a charge into that soil. Make sure their soil does have some nitrogen. So as soon as those roots come out after about five to seven days, they're not going, where's the food? There's actually nutrition in that soil for the plant to take up. And then regularly feed to make sure that the plants are growing so that they're not in any way getting starved or turning chlorotic. Because once you starve a, a chrysanthemums, it takes twice as much effort to actually get it restarted. Growers will then, of course, put a slow-release fertilizer in the um, potting mix so that they can make sure that when they're sitting outside in the rain that there's still nutrition in the soil so that they're not running hungry. At the time you see visible bud, over 70% of the nitrogen has to be in the plant. So think about it, you've got to feed them early and feed them a lot so that you can uh, have the nitrogen there to get the plants to size up correctly. Trying to feed them at the end doesn't work because the plant is not taking up the nitrogen at the end. Just no longer needs it, doesn't take it up. And we've got um, very nice data that's shown over the years that trying to feed at the end is never a successful strategy. It makes it less bad, but it's not a, a winning strategy that you should use. When you start uh, saying, what, what fertilizer should I use, then you know that's really important. And why we say 2010-20 and 2020-20 uh, is because you need to have the phosphorus and the ammonia, which comes in those fertilizers, to get the leaves to expand and push help push the branching um, so that you have a well-branched plant. I like that. And I've heard you talk about filling the piggy bank and, and that makes sense that, you know, you, you've got to fill, fill that plant with feed as it's getting started so that, that the, the, the fertility can move through the plant. Um, like you said, from the, from the stem up through the older foliage into the, into the new emerging foliage. So I, I do like that piggy bank analogy because if your piggy bank is empty at the end, at the end of, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be pretty hard to, uh, to, to start paying the bills. So, yeah. And, and of course, just a word of caution is you want to be measuring the EC of the soil because remember the EC of the soil, the soluble salts in the soil are a measurement of what's left after the plant has taken up what it needs. So if the salts are low, less than one on a two to one extraction, that tells you the plant has sucked up everything. If all of a sudden the EC is two, three, it's basically saying it's not taking it up, it's just accumulating in the soil, and now you're gonna have salt problems. So we wanna measure the um, soil EC on a periodic basis. And so if you're feeding with an EC of two and the soil is 0.5, what does that tell you, Bill? Doesn't tells you that they sucked up all the nitrogen. Right, you're running out. Yeah, because it's basically you put on two, which you saturated the soil, so the soil's not a two. You come back um, you know, the next day and measure it and it's 0.5. Well, where'd it go? It went in the plant. Right. You put on two with your fertilizer and you come back the next day and it's at three, the soil, what does that tell you? Didn't You're, take anything you, up. Right. There's still plenty left. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so the EC of the soil is reflecting what's left after the plant has taken up what it wants. 
Okay, great tip. Keep keep uh, keep measuring that soil EC, and yep. uh, and you'll have a much better idea of, of what what the plant's using in yep. terms of fertilizer. Feed more, feed less. Yep. So on the flip side, you, you touched on this a little bit with you know don't don't think that you can solve the problem by feeding heavy late. But what should a garden mum grower's fertilizer regime not look like? Well, I think one of the problems that we see is is that growers are out there with um, zero phosphorus fertilizers. So they have 15015, um, 14.014. Um, they use like a 13.213, which is a very low um, phosphorus um, feed. You need to have phosphorus in that plant to get the stem elongation, the basal branching, the leaf expansion, um, the root development, all of these are requiring phosphorus. When we see growers that have hard, poor um, growth, a lot of times they just don't have any phosphorus. Um, we, As an industry, we've gone from where we put on way too much phosphorus during the 60s and 70s. Um, during the 90s, um, there was some research that basically led us to believe we should put on no phosphorus to keep the plants short. But unfortunately, is what happened is if you go to no or significantly reduced phosphorus, the plants are too stunted. The other factor is micronutrients. Micronutrients are critical. Iron, manganese, boron, copper, zinc are critical for success in growing the plants. If you don't have the micronutrients at the right rate, then you basically are going to run into hungry um, micronutrient deficient plants. But you know the question is, well, how do you get in there? Well, people take a pre-mixed bag mix at 200 parts per million, which has formulated the correct amount of micros. So you put on 200, you put on the optimum level. You put on 400, well, you're putting on twice as much nitrogen and twice as much of everything else. So therefore you have twice as much micros, which might be appropriate. Where we see problems is when growers are using the low nitrogen feed strategy, and then they go in and they start feeding at 100 parts per million. Well, if it's optimum at 200 parts per million and you cut the nitrogen in half, you're cutting the micros in half. So the micros are being applied at sub suboptimal, actually deficient levels. And then that's when we start seeing iron chlorosis, iron deficiencies. So you get chloro iron chlorosis, manganese deficiencies, boron deficiency. See all these deficiencies because they're just not feeding enough micronutrients. So make sure that you've got a well-balanced fertilizer program and that you're applying it on a regular basis um, so that you end up with you know a good, strong, overall healthy-looking plants. Excellent. You really good advice paying. So, yep. you know, paying close attention to your fertilizer and making sure it's balanced. I think that that's, um, yes. it seems like something every grower would be doing, but I know that it certainly uh, is not always the case. So, yeah, well, sure you're your busy. You're, you're, you're busy during the critical May, June period. And then July, we kind of head off to uh, parts unknown to, to mm -hmm. um, you know, recoup after a, hopefully a very vigorous spring of go, 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 and then we come back in in the middle of July and go, oh, what about the mums? Excellent. So beyond the temperature and feeding, what other factors do growers need to consider when they're, you know, rooting and starting garden mums? Are there other best practices you want to share? You know, maybe, you know, I, I know that I'm just reading 
culture and production articles. There's the media you need to consider, water management, a topic you and I have covered before. Um, any other pieces of the puzzle that are that are kind of critical at this uh, stage of the game? Well, I think that um, every grower has got their own growth regulator program, um, and that's really important that you match your growth regulator program to how big plants that you want. Um, you know, the monster mum strategy that is kind of prevail in the industry where everyone wants these absolutely enormous mums. Um, it's important that you have the right growth regulator strategy to hit those. And we'll talk more about that in the next um, podcast where we talk about, okay, now we're in July. How do I make sure my mums are the right size? Um, but probably the, the one thing that we need to be aware of is um, insect issues and disease issues. So let's just talk a minute about insect issues. You know, we've, um, you know, we've got our production with um, a world-class producer who basically is about as in tune with as anyone I've run into with the challenges that growers are experiencing, specifically with mites. Um, they've been scouting the crop very aggressively, spraying proactively, making sure that we are mite-free Mites are a serious problem in a number of different crops. So um, I think we just all have to be aware of it and we have to make sure that we have the cleanest plants possible. And we feel that that's what we've got this year in our, um, in our mum unrooted cuttings. And then you as a grower have to take the responsibility to keep them as clean as possible. So you need to make sure that you've got a mite spray program ready to go should you see any mites, because the earlier you control it, the easier it is to get on top of it. You know, our friend leaf miners are always a concern, um, but generally um, it's easy to tell that you've got leaf miners and, you know, get on top of them and scout. Scouting, scouting, scouting is so critical. Um, <clears throat> one of the emerging problems on the disease front is chrysanthemum white rust. This is a disease that is quarantinable by the USDA, meaning that um, <clears throat> should you by chance come down with chrysanthemum white rust, then the guys in the white suits with the big plastic bags show up at your property and then basically um, bag everything and then pay have you pay for destroying it. Um, so we don't want to go there. The best, if you have any concern, if you're in the Northeast, US or if you're in the um, Pacific Northwest, these are two hot spots um, because the disease, the chrysanthemum white rust can and has been documented by Penn State to be carried over in, gar in not only garden mums from you know somebody else, um, but also in a couple of perennials. So we wanna make sure that you're spraying proactively with chrysanthemum white rust. And we do have a document that we've prepared <clears throat> on chrysanthemum white rust and its control. And if you're interested, we can get that um, sent out or you can get that. I think, Bill, you'll have a link that they can um, pick up if they need it, right? Yes, absolutely. We'll put a link to uh, that chrysanthemum white rust document in the show notes. Um, we do have it at ballseed.com along with uh, a lot of other um, technical and cultural articles. I will definitely include that link. And we know that these spray programs, these were developed by um, um, Cornell, um, Marjorie Doherty at uh, Long Island Research Station has really worked with um, us on developing this spray program. And we've got um, examples where customers very close to each other spray or don't spray. 
have or don't have, and you can pretty much figure out uh, the story from there. <clears throat> so we know that spraying is important. So make sure that you put on the preventative sprays if you are in a high-risk area. Not everyone is, needs it, but if you are in a high-risk area, make sure that you are protecting yourself from the possibility of chrysanthemum white rust. Um, affectionately, affectionately referred to as CWR in the world of chrysanthemums. Gotcha. So there are some uh, specific um, insect challenges to keep an eye on, you know, stay on top of your scouting for the mites, the leaf miners, like Will said, and then um, CWR and that, you know, specifically impacting the, the garden mum crop. So I don't know, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. What, why can't we import um, unrooted cuttings from offshore with mums? Well, it is basically the chrysanthemum white rust. Okay. It has um, not been found to be a, um, well, I don't really call it a native disease, but it's, it has not been widely found in the U.S. And so many countries, the U.S. and others, um, basically prevent importation of different um, plant material that could carry diseases into the country just to keep it out. I mean, everyone that's ever um, tried to have green ash um, trees in your yard would sure like someone to have been a little bit more, um, what could we say, rigorous in the uh, keeping the emerald um, borer out of our, um, emerald ash borer out of our, the U.S. because they sure have devastated, you know, our forests and our um, front yard planting. So this is why we have these rules to try to keep out foreign pests and diseases. Okay, that makes sense. And, you know, you had to that that pain point of emerald ash borer i have personally had to have four trees removed between our houses in illinois and uh here in ohio um due to that disease so yeah the the spread of non-native diseases is certainly something i am aware of and um i thought it was uh chrysanthemum white rust that that meant that we had to domestically produce all of the unrooted cuttings but i wasn't quite sure thank you i appreciate that yep so what have we missed? Are there any other best practices related to getting mom started that you want to cover quickly before we wrap this uh, first part in our three-part series up? And, you know, maybe you can preview a little bit of what listeners can expect to learn in the next two parts um, of this mini-series. So is there, what have we missed and what, you know, what's going to come in the next two, next two parts? Well, I think that, um, you know, you know, if you pay attention to the temperatures, so that they're growing vegetatively, they don't butt up on you. You feed them so that they're growing vigorously. Um, I would say 80% of your problems are pretty much under control. That last 20% is really making sure that you put growth regulators on them if needed, that you get them planted on time, that you don't let them get root-bound um, in the containers. You know, Keep them moving along. Um, put a high priority to get them planted as quickly as possible because that will keep them shorter. It will also help get them branching and it'll also um, keep them growing vigorously when the temperatures are a little bit cooler. Um, Make sure that you've got your disease control program in place. If you have a history of root rots, make sure that you put something in um, as a drench to control it. Um, If you've got high disease insect pressure, that you've got a spray program. It's pretty much, you know, at this point, you really have to be thinking preventatively. What do we need to be thinking about so that if something happens, we're ready to react during this busy time when you really don't have a lot of time to worry about stuff uh, because you're busy trying to ship product. So trying to squeeze shipping product and figuring out why are these problems 
is probably going to be tough. So let's you know plan ahead and be ready to go is really critical. If you need additional information, you know the Balseed um, website and Bill's going to give you the links has got a lot of information on propagation. You know if you're not sure about the misting frequencies or how to mist um, chrysanthemums, there's tips on that. <clears throat> there's a lot of other um, tips that you could use that just in case you don't know um, that are there. So by all means. Um, check the website for additional information. And I think that, you know, it's probably good to note that our our mum catalogs um, that we put out every other year and have for many, many years um, are, are full of great resources. I think they're some of our most comprehensive catalogs that we put out as a company in terms of propagation information, tips to getting off to the best start, charts about everything from flowering dates to the use of black cloth and which varieties are best for, um, you know, early middle of the season, late in the season. So again, refer to refer to your ball mums catalogs for a lot of great information. You can find those mm -hmm. online. I'll put links in the show notes and um, quick plug for our ball mums catalog, which will uh, will have a full catalog coming out um, this year with all sorts of new and updated cultural information that I know Will has worked with the ball mums team to uh, to make sure that that we're as timely and relevant with that information as possible. So, and, and you know, and let's not forget probably the most critical and most helpful group of um, individuals is your ball seed sales rep who, you know, we've trained them on chrysanthemums. Many of them are, um, you know, leading experts in, um, in their territory on um, how to grow mums because we do sell a lot of mums and they have a lot of experience. <clears throat> you know, we've got resources that if you've got a problem, we've got a, a mum helpline that, um, we send the sales reps send pictures into, and it goes to the greater ball technical team to help solve the problem. So ball is here to help sort through your problems on mums. It's just, you just got to tell us what the hour and we can help sort them out. Cool. And then for the next two episodes, you mentioned it a, a little <laughs> bit earlier that the yeah. July episode, we're <laughs> going to talk about, um, getting those mums up to the right size and some, right. some, uh, some ways to do that. And then August, I think we're going to talk about having a strong finish and, and really timing them to hit the right markets. What yeah. else can you tell us about these, these two? Yeah, topics? because it's, because one of the wild cards is always, am I going to have monster mums or runt mums? Are they going to be big? Or are they going to be small? They'd be early. They're going to be late. And over the years, we've developed a number of um, things that you can look at. Remember this thermal period, periodicity, thermal periodic um, response. So it's going to, we're going to talk a lot about, um, what what's happening in July that's going to basically tell you where your mums are going to finish. And then also, if you're into short day mums, um, what you should be doing to manage the short day treatment um, to so that you end up with the mums timing out. Because as we come into July, people are going to now start needing to hit specific ship dates. And so we're going to be really focusing on how do you hit your ship dates that are earlier than normal without any um, excess amount of effort than you normally would have to do. Um, <clears throat> and then when we get into the um, last um, podcast, that one's really gonna focus on how do you finish strong? What are the things that you need to improve the shelf life, to improve the sell-through of your chrysanthemum crop that's sitting on the um, ground ready to go? So those are kind of the topics that we're going to be um, talking about. And you know, what are the tricks that growers use to fine-tune the crop so that they hit the right dates and hit the right size, because those are the two critical 
factors in success with moms at that point in the game. Excellent. Well, I think that this was a great episode that'll uh, kicking off our three-part mini-series on growing your best garden mum crop. Um, I definitely appreciate your expertise with this important seasonal crop and your willingness, as always, to educate us all. Um, you know, I, if you can, if I can understand what you're talking about without uh, much of a growing background, I'm sure that our listeners. Um, are certainly gleaning a lot of critical information and I appreciate the way you make it accessible and understandable. So how can listeners get in touch with you with any questions they might have um, or to talk through some of these uh, best practices that you shared today? Well, they can either um, go ahead and, you know, if they contact their sales rep and he's not able or she's not able to answer it, they'll send the question on to me. Um, or if you want to, um, you know, drop me an email at wheely at ballhort.com. Or if you want to try the uh, mom helpline, um, those are other um, ways that you can get an answer to your question. Excellent. I know that if you, I mean, if you call into ball customer service, 800-879-BALL, um, call your ball seed rep, call your ball color link rep. Um, we're definitely uh, a very uh, strong company when it comes to mom mums and uh, those resource, resources should be readily available. Um, thank you so much, Will. Uh, I appreciate all of your time. Um, and to the listeners, remember that the good doctor will return in a couple months with two more parts to this mini series. So stay tuned. But for now, your mom cuttings are going to be arriving in the next month or so if you're listening in real time. And I know how busy you are shipping out spring plants, but Nonetheless, you definitely need to take time to focus on rooting these moms. And in that case, I think this is an episode that should be shared with your entire production team because everybody's going to be required for success uh, with your mom crop, especially at this crazy time of year. And Dr. Will and I will be back with another episode in July to talk about ways to correct any problems that may have popped up uh, during this period of time and to keep that garden mom on track. So, Will... Thank you very much, and we will be talking here in a couple months. Perfect. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to STEM, insider tips for greenhouse pros, and special thanks for helping us surpass 8,500 downloads. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to give it a good rating on your podcast player, or better yet, write a quick review. This will help expose more potential listeners to STEM. We really appreciate the support. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. That's B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips like these from Dr. Will Healy, and more. And now you can follow STEM Greenhouse Podcast on Instagram. That's STEM Greenhouse Podcast, all one term, for behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, and all sorts of good stuff. Recently, I posted a ton of photos from California Spring Trials and had a lot of great interaction and engagement with the listeners. So let's end this episode with a quote about following directions from one of my favorite philosophers, Dr. Seuss. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who'll decide where to go.